Welcome to another iAnimate podcast. I'm your host, Larry Vasquez, and joining me this session here is Mr. Jason Ryan. So watch out, keyframes and graph editors, because he owns you. Jay, how you doing, man? <laughs> Not too bad, Larry. <laughs> <laughs> this is our 21st episode, and we've got a great, great podcast for you tonight. We have three of our instructors, Chris Kirschbaum, Dave Harden, and Luke Randall. All great animators and really great communicators, and I think they're going to have a lot to share in this episode here. Briefly, I want to talk about some of the stuff we got coming up here at iAnimate. We're trying to definitely get out there in the community, and one of the things we're going to be at here is an event called MIGS, and I'm not sure if you're very familiar with this, but it's basically the Montreal International Game Summit, okay? And so we've got some of our instructors who are up in the uh, Montreal area, and uh, so we'll be there at, at that event. And then, maybe for some of you guys that are listening now, we're familiar with the Pixel Challenge that we were in as well and had some master classes. Well, they're going to have another one. That's, it's called Pixel. It's uh, Pixel Challenge without the challenge. <laughs> so we're going to have some of our feature instructors there, Ken Fountain and Stephen Melagrana doing some master classes there. And it's going to be on October 29th. And then uh, later on in November, we're going to be at CTN as well. And so that's that's been really a cool, cool show. Jay, what do you think, man? Oh, I love it. Yeah, no, it's fantastic meeting all the instructors. I mean, everybody comes together for that event. And then we, we get to meet, like, the students face-to-face. So it's, right. it's a great, great time to get together. Great venue, yep. And it's just kind of grown year after year, so we're looking forward to that one. So these are some of the events that will be coming up that I and I will be a part of, and so hopefully we'll be able to catch you there. We'll have some of the uh, information on these events in our show notes here. So um, look for that in our uh, on our website. And then, Jay, September marks our three-year anniversary. Can you believe it? I mean, I three years. I mean, I... You know, my parents always kind of warn me, said, you know, time's going to fly, you know. I can't believe three years have passed already. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. You know, yeah. really amazing. We've had just a great turnout in regards to uh, the show reels that a lot of our students have been producing. And it's just been kind of neat year after year seeing that level of uh, achievement kind of just be pushed and pushed. It, it, it really has. You know, Lara, I mean, back when I was learning animation, the student level was not very good. I mean, but that's when studios were, were actually giving like hands-on training, you know, to, yeah. to student level people, you know, getting them in as, as juniors and training them up. And now like they really want people to hit the ground running, you know, so students have to kind of step up their game to become feature animators before they even set fun to a studio. <laughs> well, it's been nice to be able to have a venue like I Animate to be able to help produce that and a lot of these people just to be able to achieve their goals, so. That's right, that's right. All right, man. Well, definitely, let's, uh, let's pull in our guests. What do you think? Beautiful. Let's go for it. All right. All right, gentlemen. Thank you very much for, uh, for joining us. I know you guys have got busy schedules, working all day, and so I definitely thank you guys for taking some time out to do a podcast and get something out to our listeners. So thank you very much. Sure. Yeah, thanks for having us. Well, let's, uh, let's do a little bit of intros here, and so that way it kind of gives uh, some of our listeners an opportunity to kind of hear how you got into animation and also to be able to uh, kind of put a voice with the uh, name here. So, Chris, we'll start out with you. Mm-hmm. Um, what would you like to know? <laughs> how you got into animation. Oh, I'm sorry, how I got into it. Sorry, I was adjusting the blinding light in my face and it, uh, <laughs> and it rearranged my focus. <laughs> the, the only funny story that I can really say about getting into animation was uh, I finished with a degree in art school from Arizona State University and wasn't sure what to do and my parents were most uh, concerned about 
my fate. And I said, well, I'd like to go to animation school, uh, mom and dad. <clears throat> and they said, uh, and I, I was looking into Cal arts and we saw how expensive it was. And my dad said, geez, man, that's a lot of money. Chris, are you sure you want to do this? So well, I, I don't know. And he said, I mean, can you even get a job doing animation? I said, well, I don't know if I can, but it's either that or rock drumming. And uh, my dad said, tell me where to write the check. <laughs> and I said, Cal arts. And that was it. <laughs> and now you're doing drumming on the side though, right? Yeah. I'm still, still rock drumming for sure. But my dad is much happier about it now. Yeah. All right. <laughs> all right. <laughs> you can say my son is an animator at DreamWorks. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> How about you, Dave? Uh, yeah, I have a uh, similar, I guess my, my family was concerned too with the price of college. I went to college in Michigan and my mom took me down to a uh, ring of design to just look at the campus and see what it was. And, you know, she got the price very expensive, went back to my dad. Um, same kind of thing. Like my dad was like ringling school. Like, what does he want to be a clown? Like, you know, so, and, uh, yeah, so I went, uh, to school in Michigan. I stayed up there and commuted from home and, uh, graduated four years. And then, uh, after that, I got a phone call from Sony and came out here. I got a phone interview when I was working at a bicycle shop in uh, Michigan and, uh, came out here and worked on their first feature, uh, open season after they saw a demo reel that I submitted after college. So very cool. Pretty, pretty lucky. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and you got to work on one of my favorite movies, which was uh, surf's up. So, Oh yeah, that was a blast. Yeah. Very that was cool. An dream that movie. <laughs> <laughs> well, I definitely want to talk about that. Stuff. Yeah. All right. Luke, Mr. Randall. My story is a little different. I think I'm the only ignoramus who didn't go to college. So, uh, I'm from like a little Island down the bottom of Australia and, you know, I didn't even know about animation schools or they could even really do it for a career. But um, I used to draw comics and then the family got a computer and uh, I had a friend who had 3D Studio Max and he kind of showed me how to use it. And I just kept tinkering and tinkering and it kind of snowballed and I got a little job doing it and they kind of put me on a TV series. And then on that TV series, I bumped into a, who is now a DreamWorks animator, Philip Toe really talented animator and his stuff was just crazy good and I was trying to work out what he'd done and he'd been to a online animation school so I kind of signed up and did that and that, that helped me a lot and then from there I, I came to DreamWorks basically and been there ever since. I've got a leading question actually for you from one of our uh, members is from Nicolette Kiss. Sure. She, she says, for Luke, as an Australian, how difficult was it to get hired in the United States? Uh, it's a good question. I mean, it, because I didn't have a degree that complicated things, there is actually a visa for Australians with a, you know, if you have a degree that's vaguely in animation, you can get this really simple visa, but I didn't have that. So it was kind of a nightmare, actually. I had a job offer from Blue Sky that kind of, dissolved because they couldn't sort out the visa and then uh, I had a job offer from DreamWorks and I kind of missed that but then they kind of stuck with me and I did the short film and that helped me uh, kind of sort out a visa through through other avenues but I think once you get here it's, it's okay but you know I think it is it does help if you have some sort of degree but 
I think it's not impossible. Um, you know, it's just a matter of kind of sticking with it and pulling a few strings and, and studying the criteria of different visas. But once you're over here, that stuff sort of goes away. But one thing uh, I would recommend if you're trying to get over here, there is the green card lottery, and it's surprisingly easy to win if you're in Australia because they have an allotment, like, per country. So I think if you're in, like, say, India or something, it's really hard to win. But Australia, there's not many people trying to get over to the States. So um, I entered and I won. I was already over here. And so it kind of transferred from Visa to Green Card. But, you know, it is a little bit of a barrier. But, you know, I think if your animation's there, um, these companies will kind of stick with you and, and try to get you over. Right on. So, Very cool. Did you actually get an O-1 visa? Was it to, to come from Australia over to DreamWorks? Or? I did. I got an O-1, and so I had to kind of basically, um, you know, wrote to a bunch of magazines and tried to let them to get me to write articles or my film in there, anything to get, you know, shameless publicity, basically, so I could use that to, <laughs> to get the visa. It was all pretty shameful. But it, it well, it's, it's amazing because even back uh, when I was coming over to the States back in 95, it was the same old rigmarole uh, because yeah. there was no degrees. <clears throat> uh, there was diplomas, but they wanted people with degrees to get the visas, right? Yeah. Um, and I had maybe two years of of feature animation 2D experience, and they wanted me to get uh, it's like six signatures from producers in the industry. Six, you know, and I was lucky enough that uh, six producers actually worked on my first feature film. They were all animators and they were all producing their own, uh, you know, animation for for their own company. So they all wrote letters of rec recommendation for me, oh, wow. you know, which nice. was absolutely amazing, you know, <laughs> uh, because without those letters, I probably wouldn't be here. You know, I'd probably be still back in, in Ireland and, and in England, you know, working yeah. on, on computer games and 2D feature films. You know? I actually, wrote, I wrote people on the internet and kind of, you know, met up with people through communities and got them to, to write me letters and stuff and people at DreamWorks to write me letters. But yeah, it was a lot of string pulling, but yeah. shameful uh, favor calling in but you know <laughs> that's right and just just so everybody knows uh, the O one visa means extraordinary talent yeah. wow so, so we're in the presence of extraordinary talent <laughs> yeah I, I like to tell my wife that that I'm you know, certified <laughs> extraordinary <laughs> non-certifiable right yeah. yeah I think for for any Australians listening the E1 visa is the pretty simple one to get that if you got a degree that's kind of vaguely right. in, in animation you can uh, scooch over pretty easily. But the diversity lottery, like for anybody who uh, is eligible for that, I would highly recommend signing up for that because, like Luke said, each country has an allotment of visas and they basically pull your name out of a hat kind of thing, you know. Mm. But like, there's thousands and thousands of visas available for each well, they, country. They're, they're green you know? cards. They're actually green cards. So once that's you right, got it, yeah. Yeah, that's right, the green card. Sorry, not the O-1 visa. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm here on an O-no visa. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I tell my wife. <laughs> and it's funny, when, when I first came over here, with the L1 visa, uh, the DMV, like the Department of Motor Vehicles, uh, would not allow me to have an actual driver's license, a, a plastic driver's license, you know, with the, the full-on ID. They actually had to give me a temporary license yeah. and then give me an extension on the temporary and an extension on the extension of the temporary. That, that's still you know, happening, yeah. Really? Yeah, yeah. I mean, because uh, each L1 visa has to be renewed 
each year. Wow. The renewal has to be like every year. So they have no guarantee that you're going to be here next year. So you literally no have to get a green card, like, <laughs> like a driver's license. You know? <laughs> All right, Dave, question for you. What was so fun about working on Surf's Up? Surf's Up, uh, that, like I said, was like an animator's dream job. Like that film, most animated films, I think, have like 1,300 shots or so on them. That film had about 800 shots. So every shot was very long, and they were all interview shots. So it was basically kind of the exercises that we give here in class where they're nice, long, juicy acting shots. And those are what every animator wants on a show. Like, generally, they always go to the supervisors. You know, we're the ones that get the heavy, dense crowd shots or you know, a complex constraint parenting shots. But the, that show had a lot of really great acting moments in it throughout the whole show, and the voice talent on it was phenomenal, like perfect. So, And it felt so natural, and Ash Brandon and Chris Buck, both animation legends, like they were just really cool to work for us too. So. And uh, no, I mean, I had a blast working on it. That was probably one of my, that and Claudio, the chance to meet Paul, were my two favorite experiences in animated films. So, hey, Dave, did you use a lot of uh, live action reference for for? Or was it mostly like just kind of stuff in your head? Yeah, no, we definitely use live action reference. I use live action reference more now than I did back then. I we didn't really have a very good reference room at Sony. Our reference room was about the size of a closet. So yeah, it only it only worked in certain shots, but uh, for that show, it, it tended to work pretty good because you're kind of standing still being interviewed. <laughs> so, it was pretty easy, but for the most part, our reference room was pretty pretty uh, minimal. <laughs> yeah, and the acting in that that show was was pretty special. Spectacular! It felt very natural, like even though there were penguins and you know, yeah. and then, you know. Well, I love it because I hate animating fingers, and that was <laughs> 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 Chris, what was one of your favorite movies that you've worked on so far? Uh, I really um, there there have been a couple that that come to mind. Uh, Shark Tale was uh, was great fun to work on because the the approval process was just was kind of the way it should be in a way, I think. Um, <laughs> so um, it was basically just Bebo, the director, would walk around with Susan, the production manager, and he'd come in and he'd look at the shots and, uh, and I'd show him and he'd say, okay, great, do this. Um, I would, you know, I would, I would run him past Fabio, who was the Hoka. Uh, we weren't really doing too much soup stuff then i was mainly just showing stuff to fabio who's great hoka and he would you know he he anything he would say i'd do it and then uh and then Bebo would come around take a look at it give a couple notes i'd do the notes he'd come around again and and boom that was basically it for the for the overwhelming majority of the shots it just seems so i don't know it just seems so easy unless it's less animation by committee which has its good and bad points, but uh, that was really fun. It was also my first show working on, so I was, you know, oh, oh my god, I guess I'm doing this and this and here. So that, you know, that never hurts. Um, and Panda One was uh, was really fun too. It was a it was a, a a real challenge on the animation front, but there was just something about uh, the chemistry of the director and the Hoka and the soups that just really just seemed to work. Mark Osborne, there were two directors there, but Mark was, was the director mainly in charge of animation, and he just had the good sense and the wisdom to defer to Dan Wagner whenever things got really tense, and I, and I just thought that was really, that was wise leadership, you know? You can, you can always, you can hash out the details till the end of time with everybody and their brother if you want to, but um, he just, I think, had a, had the good enough sense to, when, when the going got really tough and we got to that impasse to just say, okay, Dan, you know, 
I trust you. Shot's good. You guys finish it up. And yeah, those two shows are really, really fun. Very cool. Yeah. Now, the approval process, when it starts slowing you down, how does that affect you for your animation? Well, uh, just on the on a basic level, uh, it, it lessens your footage, which you no know, animator ever wants to have happen to them. But it can be just, <clears throat> it can be really demoralizing. It can make you question, you know, your your abilities or your vision. Uh, I, I'm, I've seen, you know, the best animators in the world have their shots critiqued and ideas changed in daily. So, um, I, you know, you, you can't take it too personally. It's just how to get the best product on the screen. But when you've gone around 19 times on the same shot and tried everything, <laughs> it's really, really hard to not think that maybe it's you. <laughs> and maybe, maybe it is you. Maybe it was you. I mean, that's entirely, you know. Why wouldn't that be part of the equation? But just as far as how it affects confidence, um, just, you know, you're, I, I like to animate from the gut, like with this feeling that I'm really just doing something hefty that I feel that's awesome, that's working. And when you've tried everything and nothing's worked, then you kind of lose that ability to really animate with confidence. And uh, it's, it can be really frustrating. And that's, of all the parts of the, of the job, I think that's the one that's, that's the hardest to come to terms with. But my experience with it has been that uh, that's also where I've grown the most as an animator is through, uh, through those shots. Okay. So as long as you can keep your eye on the ball and, you know, like, you know, like they say, check your ego at the door. It's so true. If you can just say, hey, this is not about me. I know what I'm capable of. This is the context of this shot. And I'm here to serve the film. As long as you can do that and just think, okay, what can I get out of this as an animator? How can I make sure this doesn't happen again? And what's going to be the best for the movie what I found coming out the other side is that most times the thing that they were driving me nuts about was actually the best thing for the movie. And sometimes you don't see it until you're wearing your suit and you're at the premiere and you, and like, <laughs> Oh yeah. That thing that they drove me up the wall about eight months ago. Wow. They were right. It looks great. <laughs> and so that's kind of the, that's the divining thing that I keep in my mind whenever, you know, this happens because it's going to happen to all of us. It, it's unavoidable. No matter how good you are, no matter who you are, this is going to happen to you. Well, maybe well, not Sam Wagner, yeah, but yeah. everybody else it happens. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, Chris. You know, I mean, that, that reminds me of, like, something I, I keep telling people, like, last me, like, what's it like to work on feature films? And it's like, you know, it's no real difference to what you as students are going through. We're absolutely. all blind to our own work. We are absolutely all blind. And once, like, it's in dailies, and it's weird, like, once you play your, your same shot that's been playing again and again and again, 20, 40, 50 times. It looks great on my monitor. It looks great on my monitor. You show it in dailies up on the other screen, and you're like, whose shot is that? That's the <laughs> shot that I just saw on my screen. What's going on? How come, how come it looks so different? Oh, and you stop like dailies. It's like, hey, can you check to see if there's another render? Because I'm not sure. If, no, that seems to be the latest one. Okay. Yeah, can you guys just uh, disregard this? Because obviously, like, there's something glaringly wrong. And now I'm just saying it, you know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it, it is just amazing. And, and that, all the kind of tips and tricks about, you know, if you can find some way to flip your shot to go like mirrored, go the opposite way and have a look at it that way and then flip it back. Or, well, we used to do that in 2D. We used to kind of do a drawing, right, of a character, a pose or whatever, and you kind of go, yeah, it looks pretty good. And you'd hold that drawing backwards up to the light. 
and you suddenly see that, oh my, the eyes are all wonky, the character's mm -hmm. off balance, like the arm feels really awkward, and then you can flip it down and start drawing on the backward side of it, and then turn it around, and suddenly you've got a better drawing. And mm -hmm. it's just little tips and tricks on how to see your own shot with a fresh eye. Yeah, I, I got a good one to that end. Um, you, actually adjusting the lighting in the scene, that, that like aside from mirroring it, but I find yeah. adjusting the lighting, like just move that light point and look at your shot outside the default lighting and suddenly you oh, see yeah. really different. I mean, how many times have you seen a shot like come out of out of the actual lighting department? Uh -oh. And they kind of go, oh, man, what happened? Can I please get it back? <laughs> now, that's a good question. Are you able to get it back and work on it, or how does that work? Was it split and rendered and surfaced? Is that something that, hey, it's, uh, it's out the door? It's very difficult, very difficult. If it's a super key shot, and I've only, I mean, I can remember one on, on Crudes that I got, and it was sort of like a title sequence where, the letters fall from the sky and they're all kind of lined up. Breakfast formation, boom! And then they all come out and like, and Grug is there doing his one line. And I was animating all six characters, right? And they all had to kind of run towards the screen. And when you're animating it just like raw polys or whatever, like the low-res characters, you don't really see like their contacts with the ground very clearly. And then when you see it lighting, you'll see like a shadow, right, yeah. underneath their feet. And, and all of a sudden, something's not quite right. Like the, their feet like need to be slightly penetrated through the ground or something. Otherwise, mm -hmm. you just feel like they're kind of floating on top of it. You know, I they're gotcha. not quite making good enough contact. And I was saying, please, I know like nobody's going to notice this, <laughs> but... I would love to get this shot back, you know, and then and then once you got it back, then you can tweak all sorts of little things. You know, I said, no, I just run the whole thing again. <laughs> so in that, I, I actually changed how the uh, the letters fall on the effects guys. I did like some really cool grinding effects, like when the the two always come together and kind of grind and make the word the crudes, you know. And then I was able to fix a couple arcs and pops and stuff that I just noticed once it was rendered. So absolutely, if you can render your own shots. You know, I oh, highly man. recommend it. There's All no right. Control Z in life. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Dave Harden, you had a good question from one of our other instructors, Ken Fountain. Basically, the question was, how do you bump it up a notch towards the end of a show slash crunch time? How does it affect your animation and workflow? It's kind of just, you kind of muscle through it. There's not really like a set answer. I think that anybody probably has their own method to doing that. When I'm, when I'm getting into crunch mode, I kind of say to myself, okay, I got to make sure that I still maintain a life outside of the studio because I've been doing this for a while now. When I first started, I would literally spend the night at the studio. Like I would fall asleep, curl up under my desk to make sure the janitor didn't see me when he came inside and kicked me out. And and now I'm like, no, I can't do that anymore because, you know, I, I want to make sure that I'm healthy and, you know, I actually more functional the next day. So I try to actually um, really focus. What I'll do is I'll actually turn off my internet. Like at work sometimes I won't open up my internet because that's a big distraction. Like any type of distraction is what slows me down. Because I, I still find myself animating just the same amount of speed. I don't 
don't animate any faster when it comes to crunch mode, but if I have less distractions, I find that I actually am much more efficient when I work. I'll show my shot more often um, to make sure that I'm staying on track so I don't get like a humongous blow in like, you know, the 80% mark and then I have to go back to the beginning. So I'll make sure that I'm showing more often the beginning stages. So I'll show reference quite a bit uh, and so then I can get it approved. And so I know when I go to show my animation, they're not going to throw me a, a curveball and be like, oh no, do this instead. And you'd be like, oh no, that took me a week to put that in the computer, but reference only took me a half hour to shoot. So I, I try to find shortcuts like that. And generally I use those throughout the production, but when it comes to crunch, I really kind of focus on those a lot. So. Gotcha. Luke, what about you? Um, yeah, similar to Dave. You know, I, I won't compromise quality or anything like that, but just more aggressively looking for, for ways to save time, such as, yeah, showing, showing reference or uh, seeing if there's anything in the library on a shot that's maybe not as juicy. Like, say, you got, like, just characters from really far away walking and talking. You might look for shots that have already been done like that and recycle some animation, and then you can put that time into a juicy acting shot, you know, which is just going to be more efficient use of time, basically. Okay. Um, let's see. Ask another question here. Jay, you got one? Well, you know, specifically on Turbo, because in DreamWorks, like, they had a, a ton of movies going on all at the same time. And so I think myself and Dave kind of went on to the show pretty much near the end of, of it. So we really didn't get that many shots. But, I, you know, we'd always kind of meet, like, around lunchtime, like, with people on different shows. And I, I was on Crudes and Madagascar 3. Uh, Chris, you were on Mad 3, and then you went on to uh, Turbo. Um, but I always kind of talk about because, like, the grass is always greener, like, with animators. You know, you always want to be on the other show. You don't want to be on the show. <laughs> Except for Cruz. Actually, Cruz was, like, probably one of my, my favorite shows to actually work on. Uh, that was amazing. But I, I wanted to find out, like, what was it like in the beginning of Turbo? Like, because I always heard it was hard to kind of get that show off the ground as far as like finding the performance for the snails you know how do, how do we get those snails moving and Ludo uh, specifically found like some sort of a formula that he was able to copy the animation from the head onto the body to get like this kind of fleshy feel to the snails and I, I just wanted to know like does anybody know any of that? I know a little bit about uh, the, the Ludo system that you're talking about and I think yeah. that, that was actually something that came along later in production but Ludo was responsible for kind of cracking the snails early in production. It's probably pretty well known, but it was a really tough project in general. And I think for the first couple of months, anything anyone did with the snails, and this is before I got on as well, but the director just didn't really like. Um, he was having a real hard time finding something he liked. But Ludo is, you know, he's one of our best animators at DreamWorks, but he... Uh, Ludo, I'm I'm going to embarrass myself if I try to pronounce his last okay. name. Yeah, there we go. Yeah, but he, he kind of started, he, he's really talented, and he's the one who kind of pushed it and started doing this stuff that the director liked, but it was very fleshy, and that's just his style. But later in production, he kind of, um, he, they were wondering how he was cranking out so much footage compared to everyone else, and, and part of his workflow was to kind of, he was taking the translates off the head, where he was doing all the kind of head bobbly bobblehead kind of acting and he would copy those translates down the sort of chain down the neck the spine and the body and sort of offset them in a very specific fashion and it would just give you this kind of bouncy uh, feeling throughout the snail and then they ended up kind of 
making it into a script. It, it never worked for me, I'll be honest. The script, um, <laughs> I think you have to be some sort of mad genius. But I, I did use the same kind of workflow where I would take that, that acting from the head and copy parts of it onto the body as a starting point. How were they doing it beforehand that was not producing the results they wanted? Well, I don't, I don't think it was that particular little tip that, that was producing the results. I think that was just an efficiency. Yeah. Uh, but I'm, I'm not sure. I think there was just a lot to work out with the snails. I think even Ludo had a lot of trouble getting stuff in the beginning. It was just a lot of stuff with eye shapes. By the time I came onto the show, which was still pretty early, there were a lot of rules like, you know, snails that look good like this. You know, we have to move them mouths. And to give you an idea, I think with Turbo, you had to translate the mouth like out of 100, like up to like 80, just as a starting point to keep them moving. Is that right, Chris? Something like that? You, know, you yeah. really have to... Yeah, there was the thing with the mouth. There was the thing with uh, changing the, the rotation from for the head to the to not being in the middle of the head, but That's to being right. in the back of it, so that the uh, the up and down for the head and the rotation would pivot in a way that played better to camera. Wow. Um, just yeah, just a bunch of little things like that. And then even graphically with the eyes, wasn't there something yeah. that the eyes had to be kind of interpenetrated a little bit, to, exactly. you know, yeah. from a certain angle, right? So you didn't see the penetration, but they, they brought them closer together or something, you know? Yeah, I think that's kind of typical. Like, I, I think when I first came to DreamWorks, Chris, I was in like a an intro class of yours, and like you were saying, one of the first things you do on Kung Fu Panda is like converge the eyes so they kind of come closer mm -hmm. together just yeah. gives you that cute thing. I think almost any kind of stylized animation show, you know, that, that goes a long way when the eyes are kind of wide apart or wall-wide, you know, it's, it's not very cute. Is that easier to forget in CG since you aren't since you already have a set model versus maybe 2D where you're having to specifically draw the eyes in and so you would naturally maybe draw them that way? But once you've been on production for a little while, then it just sort of becomes part of your muscle memory. Like every, every time you open up a shot, you know, we all have our rituals that we have when we open up a shot. However we set up our shots, whatever we do, our pages, our, you know, whatever it may be. So, um, yeah, I, me being who I am, it always takes three or four times for uh, the suits to say, oh, and by the way, that thing we told you three times, make sure to do it again because you haven't done it. <laughs> And then after that, then I'm kind of good to go. You know, you just, and it's true, it's like you just get used to what the characters are supposed to look like. You, you get to yeah. know them. Then when, which this is something I always tell my students to do, which is uh, a fun and humbling uh, thing to do, but is to go back and look at the work you've done before. If they're ever having any, you know, lack of confidence or just even if, if they're doing great, I just say, guys, take a look at what you were doing at the beginning of this class. Mm -hmm. And it always blows their mind. And, and so when I go back and look at the early shots that I've done on a show. I'm like, I can't believe that the character is so off model. But at the time, I was like, yeah, that looks like Turbo. Yeah, he looks pretty good. Sure, let's show it. <laughs> so, you know, you just, it's just part, of, just part of warming up to a show, I guess. It's all part of the process. <laughs> now, Dave, did you work on any of the snails as well? Or was uh, it mostly uh, human? I did mostly human shots, yeah. I did, like, Tito and uh, announcers uh, towards the end of the film. I was on it about, Jason, for about five five months? or uh, Maybe no, I had less than that. Probably like five, four. Five, five, five yeah. Months. yeah, it wasn't too much, yeah. but most of the snail shots were given to the people that were more experienced just to crank right. out, the, you know, the last crunch of the show. But, you know, to add to what, you know, Chris was saying about, you know, just, like, kind of finding your workflow, a trick that I like to do, actually, is I actually will try to sneak into dailies quite a bit uh, when I get onto a show because what I find is that just listening 
to the director and the pokas talk about other shots, I can actually avoid those mistakes that they're pointing out on other no, that's cool. That helps like so much make me look like a rock star. If I go, like, wow, you totally got these eyes right. And I'd be like, yeah, I knew what I was doing those times. It's like just try to avoid following and you know falling into the same pitfalls everybody else does by just paying attention to whatever other people are getting issues. Now, would you come off of before turbos? Uh, just uh, I was on crudes for just a very short while and then Rise of the Guardians uh, for the majority of the time uh, last year. So, okay. Now, how is that jumping into a new film? Now, obviously, you're still working with bipeds and stuff like that, but the style is different. The characters are different. How do you jump into yeah. something like that and adjust quickly? Well, uh, yeah, that was tricky. I was I was on crudes for a very short time. I only had a couple of shots on that show, but with Guardians, I found that trusting my reference and stuff that actually really helped me go into crudes when i got into crudes i had full family shots so i was able to grab actually a lot of animators into the reference room and just have them all bump into each other and that really helped kind of get that interaction that i needed for the shot itself so that made the shot go a lot smoother but most of the shots that i've had since guardians have been all human shots uh, now i'm on how to train your dragon and i'm doing dragon stuff and that's like kind of a, a new ballpark for me just because it's you know it's quadrupeds it's very different than being able to shoot reference for something like that so that's trickier so, so what, what would be your planning phase for that then like to actually do like an action with a dragon obviously you can't yeah, fly I, I try yeah I mean I can't do the flying they have uh, they have you know the rigs are, are rigged a certain way where you can actually dial in controls where it'll actually make the dragon do a full flap cycle that looks really oh, wow. beautiful and it's a really smart method that they have um, sometimes if like if it's just toothless like on the ground like walking around I'll try to just act out but what I'll do is I'll act out the shot in place since I can't walk around like a dragon I'll then go in and I'll start the shot off doing the actual mechanics of a quadruped and then apply the animation of like head turns and all that stuff after the fact so I get the, the mechanics right and then I'll add the personality in like kind of uh, layering together at the same time so I know that the mechanics are going to look believable as a dragon but it's still going to have toothless personality so that's kind of how I approach those shots so well this kind of goes into even a little bit with turbo because obviously the snails are lacking in a lot of areas with limbs and stuff so and I know you guys at DreamWorks use a lot of reference how did you guys tackle the shots with the snails per se with those limitations uh, we, we tried wearing backpacks for shells and stuff on Puss in Boots for Humpty my suit built this garbage bin you guys might have heard of it I sometimes uh -huh. show my students some of the reference but you sort of get in it and walk like C-3PO and it, it worked kind of good um, <laughs> but with the snails yeah Steve Meyer kind of tried this giant backpack thing and uh, that didn't really work I mean Chris might have something that he used, but I think my technique was similar to Dave. I would, you know, take the acting essence and then the the snails, I would really just kind of, the mechanics of the snail, I would just do free form, you know, based on, on, I guess, imagination really because there's not much reference for racing snails online or anything. <laughs> yeah. um, so, it's all underground. Yeah, yeah, it's all underground. You can't find that. Stuff. It, it, it wasn't, it wasn't the, the snail mechanic weren't as difficult as you would think. You just kind of think of it as kind of two IK balls kind of moving around. And, you know, once you sort of wrap your head around that, what leads and follows, you know, 
is it the, the head dragging the body in this part or is the, is the force coming from the shell? I think you just think about that and that kind of drives the mechanics and then you just kind of try and film your reference in a way that you can layer that acne on top. Well, correct me if I'm wrong, because there was a shot, and I don't know where it was at, but there looked like there was even a part that was on the top of the snail's head that somebody had done, and it looked like they pulled them up on the ends, and it looked almost like it was shoulders, like they were kind of like, you know, well, and it kind of pulled up there. And is that something you guys did, or? I know we used the the shell as kind of a shrug, as shoulders, but I don't know, Chris, did you have anything? No, it was uh, anytime we really wanted to do that cute, charming sort of, Hey, what can I tell you a thing? It, it was mainly shelf-oriented. Yeah. That worked remarkably well. Um, audiences will, will fill in a lot of the gaps. If you give them a couple of the biggies and do it well, they can, they can fill in the gaps. Mm. And so that was my biggest concern going on the show was, geez, man, I, you know, how do you animate with, you know, with just eyes? And yeah. uh, it's, uh, it's no eyebrows. Yeah. Yeah, not even the brows, you know. Um, <laughs> But I think it's uh, I think it, it is a testament to uh, Dave Soren's vision and to the the, the talents of, of the crew that um, that these characters were able to become full characters running the gamut of human emotions with without I mean because in body acting it's all about shoulders you know so to be able to, to do that without shoulders and eyebrows which to me are the two biggies uh, I think says a lot about what is uh, what is possible in animation and uh and i also sometimes will use it as a cudgel if any of my students are really complaining about the rig and it's like listen you can do this oh, no. <laughs> i mean i i think audiences will really take the leap with you if you find a substitute you know wally and you know other films have, have done it really successfully you can find something that's you know in the realm and you know, body posture, even timings, you can express emotion with very little, very little. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, so, let's see, Nicolette Kiss has another question for you guys on this here because it says, being a more cartoony show and not necessarily having precise reference for the snails as you might have for human performance, did that affect whether you chose to work more pose to pose, straight ahead? So, did it change your workflow at all for this show, not being able to use that kind of reference and stuff? Well, I think Dave talked to that, you know, because coming from Guardians, which was hyper real, you know, and then yeah. jumping off the turbo, which is like, the, the other extreme, really. Not quite as cartoony as Madagascar 3, you know, but still, yeah. like, I mean, not not quite as hyper-real. And, you yeah, know, the as, thing as that I noticed is, coming on the Turbo was, since I was working with mostly the humans, was that it seemed like Dave Storm's vision for the humans was still kind of heavily, you know, in the Guardian's realm in a way, like, where it wasn't, like, too squashed and stretched, too over the top. From the, at least the humans that I was working on, the announcers and some of the Tito shots, when he's, like, down on the ground and he's like, oh, Oh, you're so tiny I just want to give you a hug and, and it's like, it's like right up in his face um, and I use very heavy reference for that just because that's kind of the the type of shot I think it was you know designed to be but uh, for the like I said I haven't done any uh, snail shots I'm sure you know Luke and Chris could probably answer that but yeah for, for me I didn't change my workflow I actually went straight ahead with mine I feel very comfortable with the layering method that I've you know kind of honed and developed over the last couple of years ever since I started working at DreamWorks on Kung Fu Panda 
I started very heavily using a, a certain type of reference that I actually teach my students now. And it's, um, you know, all of them really attach onto it really well because they're always emailing me. I've gotten so much faster and I feel so much more confident going into the reference room and knowing that I'm an actor, not just an animator, you know, like they really feel that they understand why they have, you know, why they have to think about moving things a certain way before they go into the computer, you know? So I think that I don't change my workflow based on the type of shot it is. Um, I will, I'll still just apply my method to it. So okay. that's actually a really important point. You know, that I'd like to reinforce like, to any students reference, like for the longest time has had this sort of cloud over it of cheating. And it really isn't what you're doing is you are actors. You are trying to get the best performance possible onto your characters. And the sooner you can get into an acting room and get over this sort of crutch of like, you know, that it's like cheating. You can't think of it like that. You're thinking of, of, of picking up subtleties that you just can't possibly think of. And even if you're like in old 2D days, we would just act in front of a mirror because the technology really wasn't there for us to be able to record ourselves and then put it right onto a, a computer and basically use it and analyze it frame by frame. I mean, we'd have to kind of record on a videotape and use the pause button. Hopefully, you had a, a decent enough pause button that you could actually see it frame by frame. But usually, you would have like lines going through the actual tape. You know, you're like, oh, my God, this is this is horrible. You know, I, I agree. My my take on it is kind of I use and abuse and steal everything I can from the reference. But I'm sure it's the same for you guys. At a certain point, I just throw it out, and at that point, it's like, how can I caricature this to make it you know, more interesting? Interesting reference because right. otherwise people would just go and go and watch actors as opposed to, right. to animation. You know, it's got to be more interesting. You got to find that extra contrast in the timing and the posing, you know, all that stuff. Make it better than life, you know. Yeah, yeah. But you steal what you can first, and uh, if it's <laughs> cheating, then uh, you know, sign me up for being a cheater. You know, whatever helps you get there. <laughs> did your workflow change at all, Luke, with the snails? It, it did, and I'm sure, Chris, you were on Turbo for a while, so you can probably account for this as well. The director on Turbo wasn't really good at looking at, like, step keys or anything like that. You know, you, you, it was pretty much a massacre if you went in there like that. So you had to take something pretty well formed, basically. So mm -hmm. I, I was already kind of a layered guy coming off of Puss in Boots, especially with Humpty, because that, that's pretty much all I did on Puss in Boots. So I, I generally... 90% of the time work layered, but would sometimes convert it to step keys, you know, before showing the director for the first time, just to kind of so they don't get confused and they could just look at the poses and not the in-betweens. But on this show, you kind of had to, oh, one turbo, you had to kind of take it to maybe 75%, you know, it wouldn't animate the fingers and stuff, but everything would be pretty much in there. That was my feeling. That's how I got the least flack from the director because otherwise he would sort of wonder what was wrong with it and sort of look for ways to fix it. And that was sort of, you know, smaller Band-Aid solutions, like what if we fixed that? What if we did this? And kind of not necessarily looking at the, the big picture of the shot and how changing this small piece would affect this piece and that sort of thing. So you had a better chance of maintaining the integrity of the shot if you, if you went in with something of, a bit fully formed. So it did change me in that way, and I'm kind of still trying to undo that change on, on, the, on the shows I'm on now. So, you know, I try not to go so far, basically. You get a lot of shots kicked back as a result of going that distance and then finding that they weren't approved? 
Um, you know, I, I had a pretty good hit ratio on, on Turbo, but it was still, you know, it, it was a tough show. Even our, you know, I mentioned Ludo before is one of our best animes and all of our suits really getting a lot of notes and it, you, you could get to your third or fourth or fifth showing and uh, get fundamental acting change or a note like, let's keep this version, but let's do another version like this. So that's a, a tough note to get. You just got to roll with it, but it was certainly a, a lot more labor intensive than Stay Home, which I'm working on now, which is similar to kind of what Chris was talking about with uh, Shark Tale, where you, the director sort of has trust in the animation department. Once he's got what he wants intent-wise and acting-wise, you guys take it home. I trust you. So, you know, that's what most animators want, but you're going to come across all sorts of different personalities out there, and you've got to be able to just roll with whatever you get. What about you, Chris? Did your workflow change at all? Yeah, I, I I think it's it's pretty hard not to have not to be affected by uh, coming onto a new show, no matter how much you may want to sort of do what you do. Um, my workflow was affected, I would say, as much by the interactions with the director as it was, say, by the nature of the of the animation style itself. Uh, yeah, and I think uh, to what to what Luke was saying, yeah, D- Dave wanted to see things uh, uh, a little more fully realized, and that was a double edged sword. It definitely uh, can be frustrating for an animator. It is more labor intensive. Uh, it does, I think, result generally in lower footages. Because you know, when I tell my students, it's like it's about putting ideas on the screen in the most efficient way possible. Because you're just floating ideas, and um, if you need to go further down the line to float a good idea, then if they don't like the idea, that's obviously more more man hours wasted. And so, the benefit that I felt that I got out of that process was it did make me faster in that way and that I really had to be really deliberate about my acting choices because I knew in order to sell this idea to the director, I'm going to need to take it the next step. So I'm not going to devote this time to taking it to the next step unless I'm really, really sure of it and really feeling good about it. And also, um, because if you're trying to say, if you're showing a pass to sell the director, that might not necessarily be exactly how you think it's going to be in the end. It might just be, how can I get this idea up in front of the director as soon as possible in the most fleshed out way so that he'll understand it and buy off on it. And so it ends up being this balancing act between developing your ideas and just, you know, not spending too much time on something that he may not like, you know, developing your eye, developing your sense of, of the visual aspect or the emotional content of animation in the, in such a way that you are faster at going maybe the next step down the line completion wise is a is a really really beneficial thing uh, for for an animator to do and what i found is i haven't been able i think to come back from it um like luke says i i've been trying to a little bit as well but i do i just i tend to you know to go a little longer on my own and then show a bigger section a little bit further down the line and sometimes that's good and sometimes it's not but it did make me faster for sure Mm. yeah it's gotta be kind of tough because i felt like when i was doing i animate that you're trying to as a student find your workflow, find a workflow that works for you. Yeah. And it seems like even now you guys have been working in you, I've written your bio 18 years and you're still having to adjust for that based upon what show you're on, based upon what director you have. And so there's that level of not being able to always feel quite comfortable, huh? 
It's a humbling, humbling endeavor. <laughs> I, I think the moment the moment you uh, you think you've got it sorted out and you don't need to adjust at all, you're you're sunk. You know, you're on you're on the way out at that point. Well put. Gotcha. I, mean, gotcha. I, I would I would absolutely add to that. I would say that we're all still learning, you know. Yeah. I mean, oh. even when I was back, back in Disney, I mean, seven years ago, talking to Glenn Keane, and he's just saying, yeah, oh, I'm, I'm still there. I'm still only scratching the surface of what I can do. You know, I have so much. <laughs> and I'm like, Glenn, Glenn, <laughs> if you're just scratching the surface, <laughs> what does that make everybody else? You're <laughs> like, you're trying to make me quit or what? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean it's inspiring, you know, because I mean he's he still talk to him about animation, and his eyes are just light up, you know, because he's got so many ideas that he wants to get through and onto the screen, you know, and he's got like you know even like he can't even look probably at his earlier stuff like you know from uh, like Radigan and all that stuff, you know. I mean since his early days, you know, he can't look at his early stuff either. So yeah. I mean, and as a students, we're all in the same boat. I mean. I, I don't think of ourselves as, as, you know, even though we're professional animators, we don't know it all. Like, I mean, I still do my own work on the side to help me get better, to help hone my own craft, like, and right. my own acting skills and my own lip sync, my own body mechanics. Like, I think, like, as soon as you give up and just kind of say, ah, it's just a job, then I think you're sunk. It's like, okay, then you've stopped learning, really. Yeah. You know, you still have to kind of keep that thirst and hunger, like, to, to learn more and more and more and get better and better and better. Right. Okay. Got another question. Nick Swanson, and I'm going to shoot this one over to you, Dave. says, what should we as students focus on the most when learning animation? Is there something you look back on, I'm assuming during your learning as a student, and think, I wish I would have spent more time working on fill in the blank? Oh, well, uh, let's see. Well, I know that when I was in college, they, a lot of my instructors, all they taught me was software. And it was just software, just they never taught me animation knowledge. I never really got that. When I learned animation, I was slow filming through animated films, just pausing through it, just seeing how they did things, how much this move took, how much this ball bounce took, whatever. And that's kind of how I learned. And I think that what I would recommend is just keep focusing on just basic tests and don't bog yourself. If you want to learn animation, don't bog yourself down with cloth and lighting and all these other things that are distracting towards learning just this art form. Like, if you want to learn animation, just learn animation. Get yourself a very simple character and just do exercise after exercise. And make it short. Don't make it too long because I've noticed that a lot of people will take on a really, really long clip in the hopes that, you know, they get really excited about it. It's 30 seconds long and, and they just after five, six weeks of working on something like that, you start to hate it and you abandon it. And then you just feel like so frustrated with the fact that you didn't finish it. And so I say think on something really short, a bunch of little short exercises. And that's something that I kind of wish that I would have done because I was that person. I took on those big projects. I did like an eight-minute short film in college. <laughs> like I, and it came out terrible. Like it was awful. Like, everything was mediocre. You know, um, what that taught me is like just really focus on the little things and make that just really shine, make that really good. And I think that that's, that's where I would want to rewind the clock and kind of go back and do it that way. Mm, okay. All right. Uh, we got one from Martin. I'm going to hack the name. Uh, 
Boaz, and this one's for Jason here. Uh, it says, I've heard a bit about the rigs for Chicken Little, them being, and it quotes, breakable, and so on. And I've searched for the SIGGRAPH papers for them, but sadly they've been taken down. It says, being a bit of a history geek when it comes to this kind of stuff, could you talk a little about the process and what made those rigs special? They seem to have been a milestone in making for CG characters. Um, I don't think they were a milestone, really. I mean, when, when it says breakable, what, what I think he's referring to is we, we kind of called them a broken IK rig. In other words, there was no FK at all, zero FK. So basically, you could put the hips of you know any one of the characters and put it in the next room, and nothing else will move. You know, or you could take the head or the or the chest and put it in the next room, and nothing else will move below it or above it. So basically, it took you a while to sculpt each pose, but once you got like your actual pose and your performance there, um, and you were, you you know you built your own arcs and your own slow ins and your own slow outs, and um, but once it was sort of working you could tweak it and get like all sorts of you know squash and stretch type stuff that a regular fk type rig you know up to that point couldn't do or not easily um so so we got like i mean yeah when we did like these uh, sugar papers um it was like the i think it was all around the uh, the baseball part of chicken little you know the the baseball scene and it was a couple of 2d animators that did like some of the the more squashy stretchy type shots and uh, i think um Brian Ferguson actually did this one shot, and it was uh, the stork throwing a curveball, and he made the character, basically his legs just kind of spun around his body, hmm. you know, and he did a frame by frame, I mean, literally frame by frame, and, and he was able to stretch each one of the joints out, like, to create what he would have done as, as a smear frame in 2D. So there was, no, I mean, there was nothing really groundbreaking about the rigs, per se, it was just that we didn't like any counter animation. That's what it was all about. There was no FK at all. I mean, zero, zero FK, which meant like you had like a lot of control, but you had to keep yourself in control to keep the characters from not looking off model. So like the, the, the chest, the hips relationship, like was very easy to get too long or too short because you were just literally translating them around, you know, and rotating them independently of each other. Okay. Yeah. All right, you three fellows. For Turbo, what was it that you felt like you can take away from that show that you are taking to the next one, that you really felt like you learned a lot from and grew as an animator? You know, I think with with Turbo, the, we talked earlier about that kind of offset between the head, um, the chest, and the hips, and having that kind of fleshiness between, I almost think of them as three bouncing balls, that head, chest, and hips, and I'd never really thought about them like that way. And even on all the shows I'd been on, there was a little bit of it on Puss in Boots, but for the most part, animators weren't really creating that kind of overlapping fleshiness between those those parts. But from um, from then on, from that show on, you know, I do that in all my shots. Uh, I build that fleshiness in. And I think also because we, we really had to be super fussy with the eye shapes on that show. You had to sculpt every eye shape and hold the lids together using fine controls. Um, you know, I'm a lot fussy with my eye shapes now. So mm, that's what cool. I took away. But you, Dave? Well, like I said, I came on the show much later, um, and I, at that point, I think I was fortunate in that way because I think the director and the crew knew how they wanted the show to be at that point. We were kind of in the final stages. So what I really honed in on was being comfortable showing very good reference to the director and getting that in an approval stage without spending a, a minute in the computer. 
like shooting the reference from the proper camera angle and then putting that on like a reference plane in the scene itself and then playing it with the proper audio and so he could visually see what the shot was potentially going to look like and that actually helped me in just in terms of getting final you know shots final much easier with him so i i didn't really have the speed bumps a lot of people had uh throughout the beginning of the show and i think a lot of you guys thank you ironed it out for us so <laughs> no, but other than that that's kind of what i really took away from that is just being very comfortable showing my reference in front of dailies which can be embarrassing a lot of people don't like showing their reference to other people but you know as long as you get over that and realize like look you know if they laugh and the shot's supposed to be funny then you did a good job you know if they laugh and it's supposed to be a serious moment then maybe you got to rework it you know but you can you, you spend a half hour doing it so you really are efficient that way chris uh study the bible Every show's got one. Uh, the wiki pages about, you know, what the characters are supposed to look like, how they're supposed to behave, more importantly, what they're not supposed to look like. Take the time, go through, look at the wiki pages, watch the videos, even if it takes a couple days to get through it all, and you're thinking, oh, oh I should be animating, I should really be animating, just, just take the time and do it. It will that time will pay back 10 times over. And it's what, my, it's what I tell my students, too. You have to know your characters inside and out in order to animate them effectively. So if you don't take the time to, to get to know the character, then you'll be chasing your tail animating. And uh, that I didn't do as much of that at the top of Turbo as I really should have. And, uh, and that when I, when I faltered on the show, I think that was the reason as much as any. So that was... That was something I was aware of already, but Turbo was a show that really just kind of hammered that uh, that idea home to me. That you you, you got to know as much as you can before you even worry about animating. Before you even open a shot, do the pre do the prep work. Uh, it pays off every time. When Chris is talking about wiki pages, for those that don't know, it's basically like a, an online resource where you can look up like each character, Turbo or, you know, Big Chat or whatever characters there are in, in the movie. And it's like a written description plus pictures. And that's also links to shots. So you can kind of see like earlier shots that have been done or basically theory and formulas for, for how the characters are supposed to look and not look. So like an online uh, model sheet, if you will. That's cool. All right, I got two more questions for you guys. What are you most enjoying about animation right now? Okay. You want that? I'll, I'll take it. Um, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> I love everything about it, even the crap. <laughs> yeah, I just, uh, yeah, I mean, I, you know, it's, it's funny. I've been I've been doing it a long time, and uh, I love doing it as much now as I ever have ever in my life. Um, I'm not even sure why. I think I'm just wired for it, but it's just it, it's fun. It you know we all know the pitfalls, we know the downsides, but to work on these shows and play with these toys and play with these characters and just have a part in doing this, yeah, I just I love it all. And even when okay. even when I'm when I'm fighting a director or things are I'm down, I still always remember just how much I love it. <laughs> That's cool. Okay, yeah. Chris, I got a follow-up question for you. Do you do you find uh, uh, drumming uh, or music has any sort of relation, like to to what you do in animation? Uh, without a doubt, without a doubt. I think any any artistic endeavor has to have a sense of rhythm to it. It has to have a sense of contrast to it. It has to have uh, a sense of lighting, 
shading, uh, dynamics, flow, all the things that work in an animated movie will also work on a Van Gogh painting or a Beethoven piece or an Edgar Allan Poe short story. And people are people. And art that is meant to move them in an emotional way will follow the same parameters no matter what the medium is. That's not just true from, from mouse to pencil to clay. That's also true to music. Uh, you know, literature, you name it, whatever your thing is. And so what I found is when, I, when I'm able to think musically in terms of animation, that helps. And when I'm able to think animatedly in terms of playing the drums, I find that that helps too. Mm-hmm. Okay, for those that listen to the podcast with Jason and Mike Walling, uh, we had an intro of Jason playing the drums. Okay, so Jason's got a heavy background in the drums, but Jason has said that Chris Kirschbaum here is the killer drummer. So, oh, well, let, let's, let's just call it a spade a spade here. Chris is actually a session drummer. Now, but the big difference between me, uh, I'm more of a hobbyist. <laughs> Chris is like a pro. I mean, I I think uh, if, if, if the world fell, animation fell off the face of the earth, Chris could easily just fall right into session drumming and not miss a beat. All right. Uh, I had to throw that one in there. Okay. Thank Dave you. or Luke, which one do you guys want? Basically, what do you enjoy most about animation as well? Uh, okay. um, I think for me, it's, it's always just the acting. And I think, you know, lately the, the joy has started to come from like trying to find something specific to the character as opposed to, you know, me standing in front of a camera waving my arms around, actually kind of stepping back. And, am I an alien or am I a 12-year-old girl or am I a snail? And kind of trying to build a performance, you know, what I can juice out of myself, what I can find online, that sort of thing. And kind of crafting it all together into this Frankenstein, but you know, finding something specific and finding something new that maybe no one's done on the show yet, that's kind of, that's where the fun the fun of it is for me at the moment. But, you know, it's always changing and there's always something in every shot, even when, you know, I'm going through a, a more down period with it. It's always like, oh, well, you know, I'm really into eyes at the moment. I'm, I'm nerding out on animating these eyes. I'm really into lip sync at the moment. So there's always something, but for me, I usually come back to the acting. Okay. Um, I'm back to you, Dave. Hang on real quick. Uh, Luke, is there anything that you do extracurricular like uh, Chris does drumming? Is there anything that you do? Uh, I, I play Enjoy. guitar and do filmmaking. Um, you know, I, I, I don't think – I'm not a session guitarist or anything. <laughs> so, but I don't think it informs my work that, that well. I'm a much better animator than I am guitarist. But I think filmmaking, you know, I, I love learning from dailies and stuff and, you know, just terminology and rhythm and pacing and, and all these things that directors talk about that kind of rub off on you over the years and you don't even realize you're kind of learning them until you're going to make something yourself and you know you've got all these instincts you kind of didn't know know you have very cool all right dave what about you what are you enjoying about animation right now Ditto what uh, what Chris and Luke was saying. I think a, a big thing that I really love about working just in film in general is just the collaboration process of just the hundreds of people that you'll be working with on a daily basis. That and you're working on something so secretive that nobody in the world even knows what it is yet, and then you get to like reveal it to the world, and it's just like this really great thing that you get to do, and it's like so exciting. It's like a, a, like you're working on this little like secret gift for everybody, and it's really cool. To see. <laughs> 
to see kind of like people's reaction to it when you see, you know, you're, you'll be looking at like everyone does like Rotten Tomatoes and you're looking at the critics and you're seeing the box office results and you just want people to love what you've created. And, and it's, that's really exciting for me. And every single time I work on a film, I, I get really stoked just to kind of like be a part, see the trailers come out. And, you know, the, the animation process is really great for me because I, I love taking my work to the best level it can be and then somebody else makes it better in the next department. Like somebody will take it to that next level and somebody will just make it look that much cooler than I ever could have. Because I'm not a lighter, I'm not a texture artist, I'm not, I can't prefer on something, but they'll do it and they'll make it look really amazing. You're like, oh, this is so cool now. Like, and, and then some other personal portfolio effects on it. And somebody actually asked me recently, I'm like, you know, you, you read a lot of books. And I'm like, no, I really like watching a lot of films. And they're like, oh, but books are better. And I'm like, yeah, but there's a lot of aspects to film, like the soundtrack and the, the music that really go a long way with me. So being able to work with really famous actors and then getting to animate those actors and then having somebody else like a John Powell put a really famous score on it. Like it's just, to me, it's a dream come true because I've watched films since I was a little kid. So to work in films and to go into the cinema, watch the lights get dark, you know, like it's, it's really so magical for me, actually. That's cool. Yeah. All right. My last one, and I'll let Jay see if he's got any other ones, but here's my other one here is what are you enjoying about teaching here? You want to go first, Chris? I will, yeah. What I like about it is that it really feels like there's uh, an all-hands-on-deck uh, feeling to I animate. Um, everybody everybody that, uh, that I know that's involved with it and all the conversations that I've had with my comrades about it, uh, all the meetings, everything is all from, uh, from the point of view or with the aim of making I animate the best in the world at what we do. I wouldn't want to be associated with, with, um, you know, with a production that didn't have the aim to be the best it could be or to be the best in the world. And I really get that feeling from, uh, from my enemy. On every level, everybody here is really dedicated to, uh, to just pushing this thing through the roof. Mm. So uh, aside from the, you know, the ins and outs of teaching itself, which I enjoy um, specifically, that's what I like about the, the, like the prime directive of iAnimate. It seems really clear to me. And that's, that's helpful for me when it comes to, you know, putting lesson plans together or just trying to decide what I want to do is to, to never forget that that's sort of the goal with this organization. That's cool. Yeah. Luke, what about you? Um, yeah, kind of like Chris, you know, I guess like everything, you know, you want to come at it and just see how well you can do it. And I think most of us from the previous generation kind of got here through these really indirect costs. It took a long time to accumulate all this animation. And so there's a lot of frustration in a way about that, you know, that you want to say, hey, how can, how can we give these guys, you know, the opposite experience of, you know, what we had? How can we get it to them quickly and, and efficiently, you know? And it's, I think the most fun part, though, is, is having a student who kind of struggles at the beginning of your class, but they work super duper hard. They show something every Q&A and they show something, you know, every, every review. And they always don't just hit the notes, but they, they go further with their shot. And you know, maybe they don't start out as the most talented animator in the class, but they end up with the best shot because, you know, they work so damn hard and they listen to everything you say. And it's, it's, you know, it's just fun seeing that. Okay, I've got to get a quick shout out to uh, Anna Cardio. Kind of something you had mentioned here. She was one of our graduates, and actually, I had a chance to work on Cloudy with a chance to meet Moss too. And I think I'm going to try to get a podcast in with her. Uh, but she had mentioned something at our IMA graduation, and just a sincere and heartfelt thank you to myself, to Jason, and stuff. And 
but it's something you hit upon there is just that hard work and dedication, you know, and I know that we're providing a, a, a solid environment for that learning, but it's just so awesome when you see students who are, have that dedication and that hard work when they're able to pull through on that kind of stuff. So yeah. uh, I just kind of want to give her a quick shout out because um, it does, it takes a lot of hard work and just need to see when that actually pays off like that. So absolutely. All right, Dave, what about you? Oh, I, I love the I love the pay it forward attitude that all the instructors have. I mean, every single instructor here was there at one point, and the fact that we've all taken time, you know, and we come to this class every week and we give all of our knowledge that we've learned over the years, all the little, you know, the bits of information that we collect, and it's great to give that to the students in a very affordable, easy to understand, and very visual way. And you know, we we just the past couple of weeks we've been really you know trying to push to get this you know great new software and. It's really, you know, just shined. The students have loved it. And I, the thing that I really, you know, really have enjoyed about iAnimate is just that it's, it's out there and it's very easy for students all around the world to access. I have students in Poland and Australia right now. I mean, mm -hmm. that's like the coolest thing for me is being able to say, oh, yeah, I got international students. <laughs> we teach animation here. We don't teach software. We don't teach because software comes and goes. I've been at DreamWorks and Sony. I've learned three different software programs since I've been in my career. And it's the animation knowledge is the thing that stays. So that's what the cool thing is, is that that's all we teach. And that's, that's what will you know transcend all those programs that you're going to learn throughout the years so yeah well said dave yeah i mean the, the big thing that we you know we've been going just over three years now and the goal really hasn't changed at all i mean we always want to teach how we would have liked to have been taught you know the learning sort of curve like was so slow when i went to school i mean i mean it took let's say three years i mean and i i wasn't even i mean I, like in 2D terms, I wasn't even anywhere near close to being a fully professional level, you know. I mean, that's and that's what we want to do, like, in just over two years. And mostly we're getting a lot of people that actually have uh, some experience in animation, but, you know, that have actually gone to other schools and they're coming to us to really learn and hone in on the craft. And we're trying to take them to the next level, you know, and we're putting a lot of heart into this. I mean, everybody's sacrificing time away from their families and it is so much appreciated, you know, by me, by Kent, you know, by Larry and by all the students. I mean, I get tons and tons of emails from all the students just like saying this is the best decision I've ever made in my entire life to actually do this course. And and it's I mean, to me it is not cheap. I mean, especially, you know, I mean, for your career, I mean it's not cheap. I mean for me for my entire animation uh, career, like I mean, college. I think it was less than a thousand dollars. But I, I was, I was learning like for the, the next ten years, like all the mistakes, you know, that uh, that I should have learned in college. You know, is so, that how much calots cost, Chris? It's about thousand dollars, right? <laughs> yeah. uh, maybe in nineteen seventy-one, it did. <laughs> per week, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, with that note, we'll finish this podcast and again. And we do really appreciate your time, guys. I, I love doing these because it's just a neat opportunity to kind of hang out, pick your guys' brains in regards to animation. I just And I love getting that uniqueness from each one of you guys and how you get in here, what you do to stay motivated. And, and so we really do appreciate your time. Thanks, thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, thanks, guys. Keep sure. up the great work. <laughs>